I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26 this morning, starting today right where we left off last week in verse 57. We are following Jesus through the events of that crucial last week, and now last day, just hours really, before his crucifixion. We have slowed down in the last several weeks, to carefully consider everything that Matthew tells us about Jesus during these last crucial hours. How he predicted his betrayal. How he planned his Passover with his disciples. How he made that Passover meal of all about himself. How he sang a hymn with his disciples and went out to the Mount of Olives. How he predicted his disciples would desert him, and that Peter would deny him. We've seen how Jesus prayed face down in the garden and pleaded with his Father to be able to reject that cup of God's wrath. And how he said, not my will, but yours be done. Your will be done. Your will be done, Father. Your will be done. And we've seen how Jesus got up then to face his betrayer. How he received that traitor's kiss. How he refrained from calling down 72,000 angels to rescue himself. So that the scriptures would be fulfilled that says that it must happen in this way. And we've seen how he was arrested by those who had no right. And how his disciples fled into the night. And I've warned you, it only gets worse. Keep reading this story and it is only going to get worse. This is a dark story of injustice and the injustice has only just begun. Because now Jesus, our Lord, is going to be put on trial. And everything about this trial is wrong. There is no justice in this trial. Everything about this trial is wrong. They get everything wrong about Jesus. They, get, they go about it in the wrong way. They gather evidence in the wrong way. They misjudge the evidence they get. And their verdict is all wrong. Everything about this trial is wrong. And yet, Jesus goes through it all. And for a lot of it, he just stands there and doesn't say anything. He goes through it all because he is fulfilling the word of the Lord and because, ironically, he is worthy. I'm taking these three words for the title of this message from verse 66 in the NIV. The Sanhedrin get it almost right. They should have stopped while they were ahead. They should have stopped when they just said, he is worthy. Now that's not exactly what they say, is it? But it's what they should have said. He is worthy. Let's pray together and then we'll study this travesty of justice in the providence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sacred page. Thank you for this divine record faithfully transmitted to us through the evangelist who wrote it. And then all the all the scribes who faithfully copied it down and copied it and copied it and copied it so we can compare manuscript to manuscript to see that we have 
the virtual original. And then for those faithful translators who took it from the Greek and put it into our language, English, and have even updated that language for the English we speak in 2020 so that we can read it today and so that we can receive it today. Not just hear the word, but to receive it. Lord, we're listening. We're listening to your word. We're we're focused in on it. We're paying attention. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you are saying today in Matthew 26, 57 through 68. Lord, it's dark and unjust and frankly evil and wicked. And yet, at the same time, You have good plans for it. In fact, you have plans for this passage to shape our life now and forever. So do it, Lord. Do that miracle in us now. We pray as we read your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know about you, but I love fictional stories about innocent people who are arrested for a crime they did not commit. Do you like stories like that? Here was the one that I grew up with. You ready? The A-Team. Is that some good television or what, right? And it always starts with this thing they say every week on the show. In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime what? They didn't commit. And now they're fugitives on the run. And they're like Robin Hood and they're solving crimes, right? And then after that, I discovered a show that was from before that called The Fugitive itself. The old TV show from the 1960s with Dr. Richard Kimball falsely accused of killing his wife when it was really what? The one-armed man, right? And so now he's on the run. And every episode, he's on the run because he was accused of this crime he didn't commit. I don't know about you, but I love those fictional stories. But I hate stories like that in real life. People falsely accused of a crime. People who are falsely convicted of a crime. They are innocent but found guilty. There's a movie out right now in theaters called Just Mercy. Have you heard about it? Jamie Foxx and Michael... uh, What's his name? Ah... Michael Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's based on the best-selling book by Brian Stevenson. It's about a man named William McMillian who was sentenced to die for the murder of an 18-year-old girl despite evidence proving his innocence. It took seven years of hard work from an, this attorney, the author of the book, Brian Stevenson, to see McMillian's conviction overturned and him be exonerated. I read the book last year. Reading about these kinds of real injustice just make me sick to my stomach. Well, this trial that we're reading about in Matthew 26 is not fiction. It happened. So it's the second kind. It's real. And there has never been, never been a more unjust trial nor unjust conviction. Now there are actually several parts to Jesus' trial. But there are two main phases. There's the local Jewish phase. 
And then there's the imperial Roman phase. Both happen in Jerusalem in different parts of Jerusalem. Today, we're just going to look at the Jewish phase in verses 57 through 68. Because it was the Jews who had Jesus arrested. He himself was a Jew and they thought he was breaking the Jewish law. The Jewish religious leaders have been conspiring for some time. We saw that in verse 3 of chapter 6, 26, this, ver- this chapter we're in. But now they've found an accomplice in Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, who betrayed him. Judas has led this armed crowd to the Garden of Gethsemane. He has identified their target with a kiss, and then they've stepped out, and then he stepped out of the way while they grabbed him. They grabbed our Lord. And they bundled him off to Caiaphas, who's the high priest. Look at verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. This is the Jewish phase of Jesus' trial. They hauled our Lord to the high priest and to the Sanhedrin, which is it's like the Jewish Supreme Court. And these men, these, these men in charge of this Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, are Jesus' enemies. They have been plotting for years against Jesus. We saw it early in the Gospel of Matthew. And it has just gotten to this point where it's all boiled over. He has been publicly condemning them especially this week. Don't forget chapter 23. Remember chapter 23? When Jesus said to beware of these guys? When Jesus said that they were fakes and they were snakes? When Jesus said in public, in the temple courts, that they sat in Moses' seat but were hypocrites who were filling up the measure of the sins of their forefathers? When Jesus said that they were storing up judgment? When Jesus said that their house would be left desolate? Yes, those are the same guys. That's who Jesus' judges were this very night. The people that he has been speaking against all week. Do you think maybe the deck is stacked against him? It's interesting that Peter has snuck along at a distance to see what's going to happen. He's just cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, but here he is just a few minutes later sitting with that same temple guard in the courtyard. He obviously didn't think that he was identifiable. It was dark that night and he wasn't the one that had gotten the kiss. If he thought he was identifiable, he wouldn't have gone. Because we're going to see next time that he isn't there to stand up for Jesus. But he wants to know what's going to happen. So he's hiding there in plain sight. Now again, everything about this trial is... Unjust. Everything about this trial is wrong. For example, they shouldn't have been meeting at night. According to the rules of the Sanhedrin, written down years later, they shouldn't have met in the night, and they should have taken at least two days to deliberate and to deliver a sentence. This was a rush job. Just thrown together at the last minute with a semblance of order. They weren't there for justice. Verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus. 
So that, see that, so that they could put him to death. They weren't looking for the truth. They were just looking for an excuse to justify killing him. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 Jewish leaders. And it took a quorum of 23 to decide the big cases like this one. So when it says the whole Sanhedrin, it means at least those 23 that it takes. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were both members of the Sanhedrin who did not go along with the rest of them. So they probably were not there. But those who were there were looking for false evidence. But good false evidence apparently is hard to come by. Look at verse 60. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. I think that means that they couldn't get two false witnesses to agree. They found plenty of false witnesses, probably were paying them off. But they couldn't get them to get their stories to match up. So one would go in and he would give his testimony and they would ask him questions, cross-examine him, and he would say something and then they would send him out and they would call in the next guy and he would say what he had prepared to say and then they would cross-examine him and he would get the story wrong. Ooh, I wasn't prepared for that question. They couldn't get the story right. They wouldn't corroborate. Even though they were colluding, they, hadn't, they couldn't corroborate their testimony. And then these two came fairly close. Mark actually tells us they didn't quite agree either with each other, but enough that Matthew includes it in his gospel. Look at verse, the end of verse 60. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, did Jesus say that? Is that a quote from Jesus? It almost sounds right, but that's not quite what he said, is it? Keep your finger in Matthew 26 and turn over to John chapter 2, verse 19. Keep your finger in Matthew 26. That's where we're going to be in just a second. But look over at John chapter 2. This quote, interesting, this quote in Matthew that they garble, that they mangle, is actually from the Gospel of John and doesn't appear in the other, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. This is after Jesus cleaned out the temple for the first time, earlier in his ministry. John chapter 2. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. So did Jesus say he was going to destroy the temple? No. He says if they do it, then he would raise it up again. But catch this, stay in John 2. He wasn't even talking about the physical temple. He wasn't talking about Herod's temple. Look at verse 20. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now I've got three points this morning about how worthy Jesus is. And here's number one, Zane. He is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. Yes, he said that if the temple was destroyed, he could build it up again in three days. But he wasn't talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about himself as the temple. So that makes you think, right? What's a temple? 
Because I kind of thought I knew what a temple was when I had this great big building in my, my brain. But Jesus is the temple? What, what's a temple? A temple is the place where humanity meets God. The temple is a place of connection between God and man. The temple is a place where heaven and earth collide. This earthly temple, like the one that the tabernacle that they had in the wilderness, and then the temple that Solomon built, and then the temple that Herod has built, the temple was just a shadow, just a picture, just a type of the temple that was to come. Jesus, in his human body, fulfilled the whole temple concept. God enfleshed. God and man together as one. The meeting place between God and man. The connecting point. Jesus is the connecting point between God and man. But to do it, for God and man to come together, the temple has to be torn down. That's the cross. That's the crucifixion which is looming large before Jesus. That's the cup that He has agreed to take in the garden. That His body, this temple, was going to be torn down. But three days later, He was going to build it back up again. Does that make sense? Do you you follow that? Jesus is the true temple. And therefore, He is worthy. He's worthy of our worship He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our wonderment and amazement that He would do this for us and that He even could do this for us. Jesus is the meeting place between us and God. I'm reading a book right now. Surprise, surprise. I'm reading a book right now called Created to Draw Near. And it's about a practical theology of priesthood for us today. How we are called to live our lives as royal priests. It's by my mentor, Ed Welch. And like everything he writes, it's really good. And the chapter I read this morning is this idea that Jesus is the true temple. So we can draw near to God. Just think about that. Do you draw near to God? You keep God at arm's length? Are you afraid that He is keeping you at arm's length? Because the temple was torn down and because He raised it back up, you and I can draw near to God. Jesus is worthy. The Sanhedrin couldn't see it. They had a twisted testimony of His words. He wasn't threatening to tear down the temple. He was promising to connect people to God. Now, of course, just this week, Jesus has pronounced woe on Jerusalem and had prophesied the destruction and desolation of the temple, hadn't he? We just saw that a few months ago, a few weeks ago. So there is a justified element of concern for these religious leaders for their precious temple. Jesus actually was a threat if they were going to continue to pollute the temple. Earlier this week, he had tossed the tables of the money changers. But even then, he had every right. Jesus is not the trouble. These men are the trouble. And yet, he's the one on trial. Verse 62. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? 
But Jesus remained silent. Majestic, isn't he? I'm astonished by Jesus' self-control. I never thought about it so much as self-control as I have the last couple of weeks. At every step, I think, well, what would I have done? And what could Jesus have done? I mean, if, if this was me, I'd probably be crying. Okay, I'd probably be bawling. Let me go, please. I'm sorry. No, I didn't do it. Please, let me go. Jesus isn't going to do that. I'd be complaining. This isn't fair. This isn't true. Leave me alone. Go away. Or maybe I'd be justifiably angry. He could defend himself. At this moment, he could still call down 12 legions of angels with just a word. All he has to say is, now, right? But Jesus remained silent. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. What majestic self-control. What a great example for us when we are unfairly attacked. To not lash out, to not live for our rights. To Peter in his first epistle says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So we answer injustices with love. We answer beatings with blessings. What an example He has shown us. But even greater, what a gift He's given us by staying silent at that very moment. Because He is not just the temple. He is the Lamb. More on that in a second when we go to the table. Right now, the high priest can't hardly contain himself he is rip-roaring mad at Jesus that he, that, that he can't get anything on him. So Caiaphas tries one last trick. He demands that Jesus answer one question under oath. Can you guess what that question is? It's the Gospel of Matthew, right? So what do you expect the question is? Keep your eye on the ball. Who is this Jesus? Who are you? Caiaphas asks. This is the question that Jesus asked Peter in chapter 16. Who do you say I am? What was the right answer to that one? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here's Caiaphas, verse 63. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. What does Jesus do now? Jesus decides that it's now time to answer. He doesn't really want to. Because these guys don't understand what the Christ really is. What the Son of God really is. If he says yes, he's not saying what they think he means by yes. Right? 
They think that the Christ, the Messiah, is just a military ruler to bring victory over the nations. They think from Psalm 2 that the Son of God is just another title for the Messiah to subdue the surrounding nations. But the Christ is so much more than that. And the Son of God is so much more than that. But Jesus knows he must answer in the affirmative. So he makes sure to provide his own definition. Look at verse 64. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. (laughs) Jesus says, Caiaphas, it's so much worse than you think. Yes, you said it. Your words, not mine. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. But my words, those are your words. Here's my words. I am the Son of Man. The one predicted in the book of Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember Daniel chapter 7? Daniel wrote, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. That's God. And was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped this Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He says, up to the Ancient of Days, at his right hand. Where's that from? Where's that language of at his right hand from? That's Psalm 110, right? Do you remember Psalm 110 from chapter 22 when Jesus did that mic drop with the Pharisees? That happened this week when he said, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. He says, well then, how is it that then David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit up here at my right hand. Until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how can he be his son? This is what Jesus is claiming. This is the good confession. Jesus says, Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm not just the Messiah as you think of Messiah. I'm the Son of God and the Son of Man who's going up right now to the hand of God, to the right hand of God. And one day I'm going to come on the clouds and bring in the kingdom. We've learned a lot about that the last few months, haven't we? We don't know when the Son of Man is coming, but we know who is coming, and we know what's going to happen when He comes. The Son of Man is going to come in glory and judge all of the nations. You know what that means? That means that Jesus is, Zane, the true judge. The true judge. These men might have thought that they were judging Jesus, but in actual reality, Jesus is going to judge them. He says, in the future, which more literally could be translated from this point on, In His crucifixion and His ascension, Jesus' kingship is being inaugurated. And one day, we will all see it consummated when the King comes to judge in all of His awesome authority. He could have done it right then. 
He had the right. But then we would not all have been saved. So he submitted to the Father's will. And he just prophesied of the day to come when he will sit at the right hand of the Mighty One and come on the clouds of heaven. Isn't that amazing? He is worthy. He's worthy of our submission. He's worthy of our submitting to His judgment. He is worthy to judge us. We are not worthy to judge Him. Have you thought much about Jesus' role as judge? He was just teaching about it to the disciples in the last chapter, chapter 25. It's been a few weeks since we were there. Remember the story about the sheep and the goats? Maybe looking at our deeds and evaluating them. And what he judges will be just and right. He always does what is right. And he's always going to set everything right again. He sees everything the right way. And because of that, he then, when he judges, sets everything the way it ought to be. He is the true judge and his judgments are true. We say he judges justly. We sing about that future kingdom where justice reigns, like in joy to the world. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of His righteousness or the glory of His justice and the wonders of His love. He is worthy. But that's not what they thought. Not at all. They thought that Jesus had just right there committed the unpardonable sin. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you now have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? What's your verdict? And it comes back. He is worthy of death. They answer. That's all wrong. That's what they said, though. And that's exactly what they did. The high priest tore his clothes. Leviticus 21.10 says that the high priest should never tear his clothes. So this was yet another breaking of the law by the people who are supposed to be keeping the law. But Caiaphas does it because he's so distressed by what Jesus has just claimed and and because he's so dramatic to show what Jesus has just done. Jesus has just now played into his hands, he thinks. He's just gone and done exactly what he wanted Jesus to go and do, to say what he wanted Jesus to say. He is basically claimed to be on par with and equal to God, sitting up here at his right hand like the Son of Man and receiving worship. If he's not worthy, that is blasphemy. Now, of course, the Jews did not have the authority to go giving out the death sentence because they were under Roman rule. They sometimes did, like they did with Stephen in a few years, but they weren't supposed to. And they surely weren't able to crucify someone. Stone them, maybe, but crucify them, no. So the Jews are going to have to send Jesus over to the Roman governor for the imperial Roman phase of his trial. We'll see that soon. 
But they've already decided what they think. They've already given their verdict. He is worthy of death. He is guilty and deserves to die. And that's exactly what's going to happen. But first, they're going to shame him and hurt him some more. They're no longer just arresting him or carting him off in the middle of the night. Now they're going to, verse 67, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? You know he could have. Apparently they blindfolded him and played the game. You know, like, okay, who was that? Okay, who was that? He could have told them. He knew every one of their names. He knew so much about them. But he wasn't going to play their game. It was all self-control all the time. Even when they punched him even when their spit was coming off of his face. All self-control, all the time. So that Isaiah 52.14 became true. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. They punched him, they struck him, they beat him, and they spit on him, and they called him Christ like it was a swear word and not his regal title. And all that time, he was worthy. All that time, he was worthy, not of death, but of worship and of faith. Jesus was the true Savior. He was the Christ. He was the Christ. He was the Christ there to save us from so much more than Rome. He was the Christ there to save us from our sins. He was the temple to bring us to God by being torn down. And He was not just the temple, but the Lamb. And so He stayed silent. And He allowed Himself to be sacrificed. 